When people talk about low carbon fuels many times, they start talking about hydrogen and there's a variety of reasons why that is. But where does hydrogen come from? So hydrogen is the most abundant element on earth, you'll hear people say, but it's not just floating around waiting to be grabbed, right? Hydrogen, I like to call it a social creature. So it's always hanging out with somebody, it always needs a friend. So hydrogen will be attached to carbon and it'll be a methane, for example, or hydrogen attached to oxygen and it'll be water. Good day, everyone, and welcome to Cutting Carbon. I'm Jeff Goldmuir, your host. In this podcast, I'll be leading us on a journey of discovery to better understand what we mean by decarbonization. I'll be doing that with a series of conversations with industry experts. I hope that you learn something new, that you find these conversations interesting and entertaining. With that, let's jump right into today's conversation. Good day, everyone, and welcome back to Cutting Carbon. I'm your host, Jeff Goldmere, and I'm joined today by Brian Kupnick, who again is head of marketing for GE Gas Power. Brian, good afternoon. Hey, good day, Jeff. So, Brian, we are joined by a very special guest today. We have Neva Espinoza from EPRI. That's the Electric Power Research Institute. Neva, good day. Hey there. Thank you so much for having me today. We are so thrilled to have you. So, so Neva, I want to just let everyone know kind of who you are and why you're so important to this conversation. But first, tell us what EPRI is, what EPRI is about, because I know you've got a critical role there. You've recently been named as a vice president of energy supply and low carbon resources. But what's EPRI? Great. Yeah, that, great question. So EPRI stands for the Electric Power Research Institute. We are a 501c3. It's a nonprofit R&D organization that looks at the end-to-end power system. A lot of people refer to EPRI as the research arm of the utility industry, and that's, that's actually not what we are at all. EPRI is here to do research and development for the benefit of the public. So we're always striving to enhance and enable technology that provides a more cost-effective, safe, reliable power system of the future. That's pretty impressive. We, we like to think so. We like to think so, yes. <laughs> so, Neva, you and I got to know each other a little bit because of part of your role at EPRI. You lead their low-carbon resource initiative. What's that all about? So, low-carbon resource initiative is a new project that EPRI, in partnership with the Gas Technology Institute, GTI, have recently launched together. And the whole point of the initiative is to focus around what we call low carbon resources. And when I I say low carbon resources, I'm specifically talking about hydrogen, ammonia, synthetic fuels, and biofuels, and really trying to advance that technology to help enable economy-wide deep decarbonization by the 2050 timeframe. So it's a pretty long-term goal but it's one that's going to be very important to the energy economy as we move forward. And we are seeing just a ton of momentum and a ton of excitement across different parts of the energy ecosystem in this space. So we're real excited about it, Jeff. Great. You know, Neva, Brian and I have been having this conversation around decarbonization and climate change. And, and we're very familiar with the power sector, but it's clear that decarbonization is so much more than just the power sector. We kind of have to look across the whole economic spectrum 
to all these different segments. So what's your view when we think about decarbonization? What's the big picture? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think it's important when you start talking about decarbonization and you start talking about CO2, I think it helps to add some context of exactly what we're talking about. So when people talk about CO2, they like to talk about it in tons of CO2 or specifically gigatons of CO2 as we move forward. So if you think about what is a ton of CO2, a lot of people like to give the example of a ton of CO2 is equivalent to, if you can imagine a cube that's 27 feet by 27 feet by 27 feet. It's essentially the same volume of the Oval Office in the White House. So if, can you imagine how large the Oval Office of the White House is if you were standing in there? That's one ton of CO2. So if you think about the U.S. today, or the U.S. in 2005, let's say, the U.S. in 2005 put out six gigatons of CO2. So a ton is the Oval Office of the White House. A gigaton is a billion of those Oval Offices times six. Right, So you're talking about a significant amount of gases in the atmosphere that we as the U.S., for example, are emitting on an annual basis. And that's really what we're looking at when we talk about deep decarbonization or decarbonization in general. How can we start reducing the amount of Oval Offices, if you will, in gas that we're putting out to the atmosphere through a variety of different technologies and a variety of different strategies across the energy economy. Hey, Neva, I know the power sector used to be the largest emitter in the U.S. of carbon emissions, but can you talk to us today about we're no longer the top in terms of carbon emissions. Can you talk about what is? Yeah, sure. I'd be happy to do that. So, You know, I referenced 2005 a moment ago. So in 2005, the U.S. put out about six gigatons of CO2. And at that time, the electric sector was the number one contributor to that. About 40% of CO2 emissions at that time in 2005 were from the electric sector. If you fast forward from 2005 to today, and these are pre-COVID-19 numbers, of course, to today, we, we see the U.S. putting out about five gigatons of CO2. So we essentially put out one gigaton less of CO2 today than we did 15 years ago. So when you look at how did we do that in the United States here, there are two core things that enabled it. The first is energy efficiency. So we saw significant improvements in energy efficiency in that time frame. And the second is a cleaner, if you will, and I'm air quoting cleaner if you can see me, a less carbon intense U.S. generation fleet. So much that the U.S. power generation fleet today is about 30% less carbon intense than it was in 2005. So that has actually enabled the electric sector to no longer be the number one contributor to overall CO2 emissions. And now the number one contributor is the transportation sector at about a 37% contribution. Now, there are two things that I think are really important to note as we throw out those numbers and we talk through the differences from 2005 to today. The first is what happened to the economy in that time. So for years and years and years, historically, we have seen CO2 emissions correlate, if you will, to economic growth and economic decline. 
However, today we see a decoupling between the economy and overall CO2 emissions. Matter of fact, in the 2005 to 20 timeframe, the economy grew about 28%. The other thing to note is in that timeframe, what has happened to electric price? So if you look at the average US retail electricity price from 2005 to 2020, on an inflation basis, what you'll find is it is essentially constant, meaning we haven't seen this decline in CO2 emissions because there's been a large cost turned over to the customer. And we haven't seen it because we've been in economic decline. We've seen it because there's been significant technology and advancement and adoption across various sectors of the economy that have impacted and or become part of what's happening in the electric sector. So it's pretty exciting to see the impact that technology has had on the overall energy economy and it happening while seeing growth in the U.S. and constant prices for the end user or the consumer. But I know we've talked about power generation, we'll talk again about transportation, but there are other sectors of the economy, and some of those might be characterized maybe as hard to decarbonize. What are those sectors and what makes them so challenging? Yeah, so that's a great question too. So, you know, I talked a little bit about decarbonization from 2005 to today, right? What's happened over the past 15 years? And I talked about the two core pathways that have enabled it energy efficiency, and cleaner electricity. When we look out over the next 10 years, right, and we look at what are other ways that we can continue to cost-effectively reduce CO2 emissions, the most obvious pathway for that is what we would call efficient electrification. This is the idea of taking a reliable, affordable, low-carbon intensity electric grid and utilizing electricity to power other parts of the economy. And the most obvious and the, and the most thing you hear about the most across the conversation is really around fleet electrification or vehicle electrification. So we see that being a very large part of the next step for decarbonization to enable that vehicle fleet to decarbonize over a period of time. After that, then you're really looking beyond energy efficiency, you're looking beyond cleaning the electric fleet, you're looking beyond just direct vehicle or direct economy electrification, and you're looking for something else to really enable that decarbonization. And that's where the Low Carbon Resources Initiative comes in. It's that fourth piece of what's needed, what we call low carbon resources. So when you look at about 40% of end use of energy today, is not going to be scalably, affordably, reliably electrified with our current technologies. So we need to find a way to abate and or mitigate carbon in those other sectors of the economy, which don't have a clear pathway in order to do that right now without providing some other option. You're listening to Cutting Carbon. I'm your host, Jeff Goldmere. If you have a question on today's episode, a question on decarbonization in general, or a suggestion for a future episode of this podcast, drop me a note. You can reach me at cutting.carbon at ge.com. Suniva, when we talk about 
this first step is electrification of fleets, electrification of cars, home heating, the places where it's easy to do so, obviously that's going to place a new burden on the electrical grid, right? Because we're talking about a shift from using a carbon intense fuel to now doing that centralized in a centralized fashion and putting that electricity on the grid. How much more electricity is that going to require for the power gen industry to provide? Yeah, so that, that's actually a fantastic question, and EPRI's done quite a bit of work in this space. Um, if anybody feels like going to Google something, please feel free to go and Google EPRI's National Electrification Assessment, um, where we've looked at just some of that. But so there's going to be a lot of dynamics that are part of that overall scenario. Right? I talked a little bit about energy efficiency. Energy efficiency is a very big piece of this conversation because what it does is it overall lowers demand, if you will, of the electricity we have available to us today. So as we may be growing demand in the vehicle electrification space, we will have declining demand due to efficiencies we're picking up in different parts of the system. The other thing to think about is as we implement an electric vehicle fleet, right? And as we do that broadly across the United States, the average amount of time that a typical person spends in, in their vehicle is actually not very long at all. So we need to start thinking about and looking at energy sources in different ways. So you're able to charge your vehicle and discharge your vehicle and charge your vehicle and discharge your vehicle. And it almost becomes a battery, if you will, an energy storage source on the system itself. So in some of the modeling and analysis that EPRI's done over the years, we've just looked at from now until 2030, if we're gonna continue decarbonization, what are different potential pathways to get there? And one of our modeling scenarios says, okay, well, there's two core things that have to happen. One of those core things is you essentially have to have 20% of the vehicle miles traveled be electrified miles, right? So we're transitioning away from high carbon intensity vehicles to electric vehicles. And then the other thing that needs to happen is we need to add about another 30 gigawatts of what we call flexible resources on our U.S. grid. So if you think about energy storage today, and a lot of people will think about this as batteries, right? There's a little less than I think a gigawatt or so of batteries on the grid. There's about 27 gigawatts of other storage, pumped storage hydro is where most of that is. We're talking about an additional 30 gigawatts, so essentially double the amount of flexible resources or storage we have on today's grid. That is not all going to come from what would be considered a conventional storage type of mechanism that just holds energy and discharges it, it's going to look like innovative solutions and demand side management approaches where we control energy flows in a different way than we do today. And with the pervasive sensing we're seeing across industry, with the strides we're seeing in monitoring and diagnostics and artificial intelligence, this reality becomes one that we can actually implement as we move forward. So clearly understand how dynamic charging of an EV provides an opportunity to say, look, if I can control when that person charges that vehicle, it's almost like having a generation source itself. I can push load to times where maybe we have some excess load available. But do we actually have to go a step further? And do you see it going actually to 
vehicle to grid where you'd actually say I'm actually going to drain that battery from that vehicle put that power back on the grid and then at some point later recharge that battery and if so how do you incentivize maybe the vehicle owner in that case to take that additional wear and tear on that battery or that vehicle Yeah, so there's a lot of really good conversation in this space going on out there. So it's certainly part of a future scenario that is plausible, of course. It's going to take a lot of building customer confidence and customer adoption. A lot of people today still feel like EVs are significantly more expensive or they're outside of their reach and they're not something they're going to go to. So within the next five years, we certainly expect to see a cost parity between your typical internal combustion engine, vice, and electric vehicle. And we think that will help drive some of these behaviors moving forward. Now, there's lots of different strategies and lots of different innovative approaches that we are seeing being discussed across our utility members and our members of EPRI. Actually, our our board of directors has a large focus around EV infrastructure and how we can enable that moving forward and what some of those technologies look like. So we're really excited to see how this evolves over time. So, Neve, I want to continue on the discussion around vehicles, but go back to that system-level view. So, because you talked about a rebalancing, and I want to see if I've got this right in my head. So, in a future state where you have some large percentage of personal vehicle miles are all from electric vehicles, and and we'll use the 20% number, that would imply that we're going to make significantly less gasoline. So, now refineries aren't running as much, which means their electrical load goes down. So is that the kind of balancing you're talking about where the need for electricity for vehicles goes up, but it's not quite a zero accounting system, but a lot of that transfers from the heavy industry that was making the fossil fuel to the use of the electricity in the car. Is is that the way to think about that? So that's not exactly how I would think about it, and that's not exactly what I meant, to be honest with you. Although there may be some of that, of course, but when we think about the energy system in the future, if we do go away, or as we do go away from more carbon-intensive fuels, right, that CO2 needs to be managed and mitigated. And that's not an insignificant task, right? So when we think about low-carbon fuels, where are they going to come from? So let's let's shift to hydrogen for a second. Let's talk about hydrogen for a second because I think it gives us some context around electric demand and what that may mean in the future. So when people talk about low carbon fuels many times, they start talking about hydrogen and there's a variety of reasons why that is. But where does hydrogen come from, right? So hydrogen is the most abundant element on earth, you'll hear people say. But it's not just floating around waiting to be grabbed, right? Hydrogen, I like to call it a social creature. So it's always hanging out with somebody. It always needs a friend. So hydrogen will be attached to carbon, and it'll be a methane, for example, or hydrogen attached to oxygen, and it'll be water. So in order for us to get that hydrogen and utilize that hydrogen, we need to separate it from our friends. And that takes a lot of energy. So how are we going to go and do that? And there's several ways to do it. One way is electricity via electrolysis, something you'll hear people talk about, maybe power to gas or e-fuels. The idea of utilizing electricity, 
to separate water into hydrogen and oxygen and then capture that hydrogen and then go use it in some mechanism. So when we talk about the energy system of tomorrow, we're gonna be a more efficient energy system, so that would require less electricity. Maybe we add more electricity demand because we're adding electric vehicles. And then maybe we also have more demand because we're going to be creating low carbon fuels in the future via electrolysis and via water, right? So that picture, there are a million different models out there that you can go look at that'll predict the future. And the only thing we know about all those models is they're wrong. Right? They predict a potential scenario based on assumptions and technology cost, performance, policy, et cetera, but they could help inform us on where we wanna be spending our dollars, where we wanna be concentrating our resources to enable a decarbonized future moving ahead. Hey, Neva, can I follow up on the, you know, as we think about gaining access to these low carbon fuels, we can stay with hydrogen. As that becomes available, uh, you talked about the different methods to do that. Where do you think those fuels go first, if you think about it? They now become a resource that we could say, hey, let's send it to transportation. We'll solve that problem. Or we could actually use it within the power sector to help provide that dependable capacity by maybe burning it in a gas plant, or we could use it for heat. Have you thought through which applications it's, it will be best to use that on first? So this is actually a fantastic question. It's the whole the chicken or the egg question, right? Which comes first and where do you put it? So it's good to also talk about the fact that in hydrogen and other low carbon fuels, they are energy carriers, they're fuels in our systems today, we use them. In the US alone, we use about 10 million tons of hydrogen a year. So if, if you wanna kind of understand how much that is, if you think about a fuel cell vehicle, we are talking electric vehicles, let's talk about a fuel cell vehicle. Let's talk about the, I think the Toyota Mirai is what it's called. That has a hydrogen storage tank on it. It's about a five kilogram tank. So the amount of hydrogen we use in the US today is equivalent to the storage tank of 2 billion Toyota Mirais. So if you think about how many vehicles there are in the world today, in the world, there's 1.4 billion cars. So you're talking more than the amount of cars in the world today is the amount of hydrogen we use just in the US, and the world uses seven times what the US uses. So hydrogen and other fuels are fuels that we use, we know how to use, we know how to use safely. We're just talking about increasing the scale of these fuels. And we're talking about decarbonizing them. So hydrogen today is a high carbon energy carrier because it's created, not the way I talked about, it's created primarily from a gasification or reformation of a carbon source. So when we think about the use of these things tomorrow, first is you have to decarbonize even what we're doing of the hydrogen and other fuels that we're making. But then when you think about expanding them into other parts of the economy, there are a lot of different options. You can look at, there's many global studies that are out there that talk about different predictions between now and 2050. Some will say we'll use about 1.5 times the amount of hydrogen. Some will say up to eight times the amount of hydrogen. And they all have made assumptions on what different sectors they will happen in. What I would say is based on what's been going on in, in our work and the Low Carbon Resources Initiative, 
we have seen a significant commitment from many across both the electric and gas industry to enable utilizing these fuels. Some folks are very interested in utilizing them within their own systems. So part of that is looking at utilizing them within their current power generation assets, for example. Some of that is looking at potentially blending within their natural gas pipelines to reduce overall CO2 emissions out of those pipelines as well. So I think that what you're going to find is you're going to see some early adoption and some pilot demonstration projects across different sectors. That'll start to build confidence, and those sectors will start to build these things out slowly and slowly over time, um, which we are very, very excited to be part of. But at the end of the day, I think what's going to be most important is a collaborative approach across the board. So our low carbon resources initiative, we have electric companies, we have gas companies, we have dual fuel companies, meaning folks who own both electric and gas assets. We have OEM, so GE, of course, you guys are part of our low carbon resources initiative. And we're expanding that ecosystem. And we would welcome as many people who are interested in learning more and are interested in being engaged to become part of the conversation and part of this overall collaborative research effort because the best way to get there, the fastest way to get there, the most affordable way to get there is going to be to go there together. And I wonder if that's a great way to kind of wrap this up. You know, we think about climate change as an everyone and everything problem. And, and Eve, I think your, your point of we have to be in this together We have to look at the system and not just one segment of it, because in the end, if we truly want to deeply decarbonize the system, if we want to reduce the amount of CO2 we put out, meet the two degree C goal, we've got to start that journey. And the more people who are on that journey together, the faster we get there as a society. 100%. More people and the more technology. It's all about optionality. You'll hear me talk about optionality a lot, but the more technology options we can get out there to create diversity of options, the more cost competitive that will be, and the more resiliency that'll provide to our overall energy system, which is critical. Neva, thanks for the conversation today. I know I learned a lot and it's exciting and we look forward to our ongoing partnership with uh, EPRI moving forward. Fantastic, well, I very much enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. If you want more information about today's episode, check out the resources available in our show notes. I'm your host, Jeff Goldmere, and this is Cutting Carbon.